You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome on into another edition of the MLB Pipeline Podcast. I am your host, Jordan Schusterman, joined as always and back from a two-week Brief hiatus uh, from the podcast. Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis, thank you, gentlemen, for joining me as always. Jonathan, how are you doing on this fine Thursday? Is it a, is it a two-week hiatus or is it really only a one-week hiatus? Because it's mm. been two weeks Ooh. since we did the podcast. It's a good. That's that is a very fair question, Jim. Where where do you stand on this two-week or one-week hiatus? You know, it's kind of like when you talk about you know you're celebrating the 25th anniversary versus the 25th year of something. Mm. Um, you know, because the, the 25th anniversary is, is year one plus 25. Right. Um, I, I guess I would, I, I, we took one off is probably the way I would phrase it if I was trying to yes. be precise. But it has been two weeks between podcasts. Exactly. And and to uh, to our listeners, we, we can assure you that uh, we, we do not anticipate uh, taking many weeks off during the off, the off season. But the last week, we decided to take a little bit of a break. That was our off season. Last week was our off season. We returned to a regular weekly podcasting schedule. Uh, and it is awards week, uh, gentlemen. We have, uh, we've already got uh, three of the awards that I handed out. We'll get MVP tonight. That is going to be the one we are not going to talk about on this podcast. Um, but we have a lot hey, of- is that the Astros uh, banging on the trash can I heard in the background there? <laughs> What's going on? Is somebody uh, throwing a change up? Um, I was leaning backwards. Um, but uh, you, you, it's possible you're hearing uh, my roof being redone. It's Jonathan, no, no, Jonathan is, is being much more subtle uh, than the Astros, Jim. Uh, so so he, he tried to sneak it by you, um, but you were. I picked up on it. I'm, I'm looking, I'm sitting change up now. I'm sitting change okay. up. Okay. Well, I'm glad you're ready. I'm glad you're ready for the off speed. I am. We are going to ask uh, uh, some, some, some interesting questions on this, on this episode, uh, I'm sure. So I'm glad you're ready for anything. I'm glad that, that Jonathan is, is telegraphing what is coming here. Uh, so we're not going to touch uh, on MVP um, because that is being announced later today, but we are going to hit uh, some Rookie of the Year chat. Of course, we're going to talk Manager of the Year because Rocco Baldelli was once uh, a, a very good prospect in his own right. Uh, and then we're going to talk some Cy Young uh, looking back at the 2004 draft when Justin Verlander went second because uh, some other gentleman named Matt Bush went before him. But before we get there, let's start with the uh, with the Rookie of the Year. We got Pete Alonso, which I think we kind of all knew was coming by by the middle of the season. Uh, he, I mean, once Tatis got hurt, uh, it was really Alonzo's to lose. So Pete Alonzo, uh, not unanimous um, because there was one vote for for Mike Soroka, but um, historic uh, season, of course, breaks the rookie home run record, and he wins in the National League. Jordan Alvarez, the Astros uh, sensation, wins with what I believe was like the fewest games played uh, for rookie of the year in, in many, many years. Um, so we've, we've talked about both of these guys, uh, this season, of course, they, they've just both been crushing it. And, uh, I guess I'll start with Alonzo, Jonathan. I mean, this is best case scenario, right? This is exactly what, what any Mets fans could have wanted. And, uh, and I mean, is, is this the peak? Like, are we going to expect 50 homers from Pete Alonzo now going forward? Or, or what, what, what do we, what do we think of this, this rookie campaign for Mr. Alonzo? Well, I mean, it's fine to expect it. <laughs> I don't know that's going to happen. I mean, listen, a lot, uh, he's proven pretty much since the day he became a professional or, and even somewhat in his junior year, you know, uh, going back to his time at Florida, that uh, that the power is legitimate. It started showing up consistently in his junior year and it never stopped as a, as a pro. The question was always, well, is he going to hit enough? Uh, he, he seemed more strength over bat speed. Is that going to play? 
first at the upper levels? Is that going to play at the big at the big league level? Well, guess what? It plays, uh, and his approach is, is more than solid enough that I think he's going to continue to to hit for for power. Uh, you know, I don't think you go through an entire season like he did, and you know, and you don't believe that he's has the potential to do it again. Now, a lot of things have to to go right uh, in order to hit 50 homers every year. Uh, starting with, I mean, we don't know what kind of baseball they might be using. Um, and I'm taking nothing away from what Pete Alonso did, but you know, the difference between hitting say 42 homers and 53, you know, he could hit 40 homers for the next 15 years and never hit 50 again. That doesn't make him any less of a outstanding power hitter. Yeah. And Jim, I mean, he, he just did exactly what he's supposed to do. He's the big dude that hits the home runs. He wins the home run derby. Um, do you have any uh, Alonzo takeaways based on uh, what you thought of him coming into the season? Yeah, you know, it's funny because it, it, it reminds me of similar to Aaron Judge um, when Aaron Judge was going into his rookie season. You know, the difference between them two was that Judge had played in the big leagues a little bit the year before and struck out a ton. But with both guys, they were kind of seen as these one-dimensional sluggers and are they really going to hit? And uh, abuse is probably strong, but there were comments on Twitter for how high. we had both these guys ranked, I think around the forties on our preseason top 100. And there were fans were like, Oh, it's way too high. These guys are one dimensional. And, um, you know, it was nice to see, you know, uh, you know, Pete Alonzo friend of the podcast, you know, put the, that kind of talk to rest. And, you know, looking back on him, it's hard to say a guy who's drafted in the second round was underrated as a prospect, but I, you know, the thing is this guy hit pretty much everywhere he went. I, I don't think he was great in the Cape Cod league, you know, going into before his draft year, but I remember at the college world series, I think it was 2015. I think he was the first guy ever hit a home run to center field at TD Ameritrade park where the ball just does not carry. Um, and this guy always hit for power of where he went. And yeah, there was, some swing and miss, but it wasn't, you know, we weren't talking 30%, you know, 30% strikeout rate and it came with walks. So, I mean, I get it, you know, right-handed first baseman, you know, you're not going to take too high in the draft, but I always feel like he was maybe a little undersold in the draft and a little undersold in the minor leagues. Cause I mean, even in the minors, his first full pro year, he had a really nice year. He, he missed, I, I forget what the injury was. He missed about two months so it prevented him from putting up big numbers. And then the f- first year he's healthy, he leads the minors in home runs. And then the next year, he sets a rookie home run record. So, um, you know, good guy. I think we've all enjoyed interviewing him at different times. It was fun dealing with him in the Arizona Fall League two years ago when he hit the home run off the 103-mile-an-hour fastball from Nate Pearson. But uh, I, I don't think there's any question that Pete Alonso's power plays. I think the only the only thing that doesn't work for me in that sort of comparison you made is that Judge's power didn't really show up in the minors like Alonzo's did. It's not like he didn't have any power, but he he, he didn't hit for a ton of power in the minors. It's not you know, everyone knew it was there. He didn't hit for a ton of power in college. Uh, no, he kind know, of flipped the switch in AAA. Like it seemed like he got to AAA. He made a conscious effort to try to hit for more power, and it messed him up for a while. Um, and I think that's why he really struggled in that. I'm, I'm looking here at the numbers. He struggled 42 times and 84 at-bats in his first taste of the big leagues. Um, and, you know, I mean, he still strikes out a ton. But it was – because you remember, Jonathan, we saw him in, in the fall league, I think, in 14. 
you know, he was a guy who who didn't play in his, for draft year after he signed because he had like a, a I think a quad injury or something. Um, and but so he made his pro debut in 2014 and was solid year. But, but if you watched him at that point, he was very conscious of kind of hitting line drives from gap to gap, you know, and letting the power come naturally. And I mean, he's become a, a, a different and more devastating hitter. But I always tell people if you saw him early in his pro career. I mean, you knew obviously there was power potential with the size and the leverage and the bat speed, but in the fall league, he was just content to to hammer line drives everywhere. He was he was a he was a hitter first, and you know, and I think um, that's one thing where the the comparison does play is you know, and, and maybe that's where Pete Alonso is was sort of undervalued. Is I think he, people just thought he was this guy who was really strong who would either hit the ball over the fence or do nothing else. He's a much better all-around hitter, Alonzo, is than I think a lot of people gave him credit for. And that's what allowed him to do what he did this year so consistently. You know, you don't continually hit balls out the other way, the straightaway center field. You know, his power was to all fields. Like, it, he had an approach, and he stuck with it. And, uh, and you know, the other thing that probably sort of undervalued him was uh, his defensive shortcomings. Uh, and while I don't think he's ever going to, uh, you know, blow people away with his ability at first base, he has worked really, really hard to not be just a one-dimensional guy in terms of the power bat. He, you know, but see, he's and he'll continue to work to make sure that he is, you know, not a you know a hindrance at first base as much as he is is able to, whatever the confines of his natural abilities allow him to do. You're right. I mean, he's in, I think he's gotten in much better shape. I, I mean, he's still probably a below average defender if you look at the various metrics, but unlike, and look, we see this all the time. I mean, there, I mean, you get paid to hit and there are a lot of guys who focus 99% or more of their energy on what they do with the plate. And it would be easy. I mean, look, 53 home runs, you could be a terrible defender and you're still going to play every day. But, you know, Pete, you know, I, I remember talking to him in the fall league about that. I know you did, too. I mean, he took that very personally. And, you know, the story is that I think he was sending Brody Van Wagen in, you know, the agent turned Mets GM and other Mets staffers videos of him working out all throughout last offseason because he wanted them to know, look, you know, I, I want a chance to, to win a job in spring training. You know, you know, let's give kudos to the Mets, too, for not playing the BS Oh, Pete's got to go work on his defense in AAA for three weeks, and so we can keep his service time down a year. They didn't play that game, and they got rewarded with a great season. But, but he knew that opportunity. They were telling him they were going to give him that opportunity, and he wanted them to know, "Look, I, I'm working very hard at this." And it wasn't just, you know, Pete, you know, crushing balls in the cage. I mean, he did a lot to try to, you know, improve his quickness and his defense as much as he could. Yeah, and I'll say that uh, he was already, you know, when he won the award, he was already like, "I want to win a Gold Glove next." So. Um, he's, he's definitely worked very hard. And I, I don't know if you like the, the crazy thing is the fall league was last year. I don't know if Jim, you, yeah. you said two years ago, that was last yeah. year, which is really yeah. wild. I meant two fall leagues ago is what I meant. Yeah. It's like the, we're back to the hiatus conversation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so credit to Pete Alonso. Uh, he's, he is, he's truly amazing, uh, and an awesome personality and just seems like the, the purest and just coolest dude. Uh, so congratulations to him. Uh, let's flip over to the AL quickly, uh, before we move on, um, Jordan Alvarez had a lot of discussion about him. Uh, again, he was demolishing AAA. We're like, oh, he gets called up. We're like, well, I think he's going to be good. He's not going to be that good. Basically, just continues hitting at the exact same rate. Uh, historic uh, OPS plus 
numbers. Uh, of course, he only played about half the season, but he was marvelous. Um, I'm curious more with him. Of course, Pete Alonso has this track record. He's at a big program in Florida. Jordan Alvarez is kind of the opposite. Uh, sure, he got a big signing bonus. Uh, when he signed out of Cuba relatively, but he wasn't that that big of a name. Uh, so, Jim, can you take us back to how he ended up on the Astros in the first place and what he was uh, as an amateur? Because this all happened very quickly for him, whereas, you know, we've known Pete Alonso's Yeah, I mean, name Jordan Alvarez is on the, the, the very uh, short list of players who were traded before they made their pro debut. That is it, – it just does not happen very often. Um, and – you know, he was originally signed by the Dodgers, $2 million uh, Cuban defector in 2016. Uh, yes, 2016. He was signed in June um, uh, after defecting from Cuba. And, you know, he was, you know, okay, promising hitter, you know, what have you, and had yet to make his pro debut. You know, there's often some, a lot of red tape that you have to go through when you sign a Cuban defector and dot all your eyes across your teeth. So we hadn't played for the Dodgers and at the trade deadline that year, they were, uh, they were interested in, in Josh Fields uh, off the Astros roster who had been a rule five pick when they were in their total rebuilding phase. And they were looking for somebody, you know, the two teams were trying to find a match and they were throwing names back and forth and, and, and not necessarily finding a fit. Like, I guess the Astros were asking for guys who were too good, and the Dodgers were asking guys the Astros didn't like enough. And somebody suggested, you know, the Astros had liked Alvarez, so they threw his name out, and they acquired Jordan Alvarez. And I think they went and picked him up, if the story, if I remember correctly, at the Dodgers Academy and drove him over to their academy um, down in the uh, in the Dominican. Um, and, and as I've written, because I do our Astros stuff, and I think I've written some variation of this, like, two or three years in a row, I mean, that could wind up being one of the most one-sided trades in history because not only does Alvarez look spectacular um, so far, but also Fields pitched against the Astros in the 2017 World Series and gave up some crucial runs in Game 2, without which the Astros probably don't win Game 2 and go down two games to none, and maybe they don't win the title. Um, so, like, they, they you know, they kind of got the best of both worlds in that trade if, if you're a Houston fan. Yeah, and Jonathan, I mean, just in terms of tracking Jordan Alvarez's rise as a prospect, I again, it's happened about as quickly as one can, especially for a guy that's mostly bat first. Uh, do you have any <laughs> reflections on on how has, has he surprised you, or, or do you really believe that this is this is what Jordan Alvarez is? I think that's an either or. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, of course he surprised me. You know, Jim detailed the the story. The guy didn't even play in the United States until 2017. Uh, and granted, you know, he turned 20 that year. So for him to go from the Dominican Summer League in 16 to Rookie of the Year in 19. Um, now, Grant, you know, again, he, he wasn't a 16-year-old when he signed. So you think maybe he'll move a little bit, but he wasn't 24. You know, he wasn't Araldus Chapman going like almost straight to the big leagues, that sort of thing. It's, you know, uh, what he was able to do as quickly as he was able to do it um, is kind of crazy. And, you know, I think someone, maybe it was on MLB Network when they were doing the Rookie of the Year announcements, they, they sort of, you know, extrapolated his stats for a full season and he and Alonzo would have, you know, were on the same home run pace and he hit 50, you know, between triple a and the big leagues. So I think the power is legit. Um, he can hit, he gets on base. Uh, yeah. I'll strike out some, but who cares? Um, and I guess he's, he's planning on playing the outfield next year. 
Um, so we'll see. We'll we'll see what happens. I mean, he's played the outfield um, a lot. You know, so we'll we'll see. Now, I don't I don't really care to be honest with you. Like I, I these days, I, it's not that big of a deal to me. Like oh, you know, they've made such a fuss over him being a uh, primary DH who um, won Rookie of the Year. I'm like, so I don't I don't really care. He was look look what he did. You know, I, you still have to produce in that spot. It's the same thing with Alonzo. It's like who cares if he's like a big right hand first baseman? He's hitting 53 homers. It's like it's, I don't I don't he's he's designated to hit and he's hitting better than basically anybody. So you can't really complain. Uh, Jim, are you gonna add on on Alvarez? I was just gonna say, you know, he might be a worse defender than Pete Alonzo. Um, and I think he's going to wind up at the DH. I think they'll try to play him in the outfield, but he'll wind up at DH for the long term pretty quickly. Um, you know, I, I, it's just he's he's kind of big and you know not the smoothest defender. I think putting him in the outfield is almost a way so he's less involved. You know, he'll handle fewer balls in the outfield than he would at first base. So, um, but again, if you put up a thousand plus ops. You know, that works at DH too. Indeed, it does. Indeed, it does. Uh, all right, so let's uh, let's 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 look ahead a little bit to next year um, because a uh, great article on Pipeline uh, with one candidate from each team to potentially win the 2020 Rookie of the Year, um, and we have a little little, little banter before uh, the the we started recording. Uh, I threw out, oh, Casey Mize, he looks maybe obvious, and then Jim, you shot that down in a hurry and said, "You're crazy. That's ridiculous." Casey Mize. I, I, I love Casey. I love Casey Mize, but he wasn't healthy, and he's on the team with the worst record. So, like, what kind of pitching? Like, you know how the writers are. I mean, if Casey Mize goes eight and twelve with a four ERA, he's not going to be rookie of the year. So, I, I, I talent wise, sure, but I'm saying no shot, Casey Mize. Okay, so you're saying no shot. I, I, I guess it depends. Like, there's, there's no rush, but like he's probably ready. So, okay, let's open this discussion up then. Uh, so, you, you know, you, can, you guys can go on pipeline and look. They have one from every team. Um, but, but Jonathan, if you had to pick someone in the American League, maybe you agree with Jim. There, there are some good candidates. Luis Robert, of course, another good candidate. But Jesus Lazardo, we expect to be in the big leagues for much of next season. Maybe Joe Adele's up for a lot of the season. So who, who are you going with here? If it's not going to be uh, Mize, or I mean, yeah, if it's not going to be Mize, who do you, who you got? I mean, I would, I would love to pick someone like Joe Adele, and I think he will be up, and he could have you know a huge impact whenever he comes up. But to be, you know, I'll, I'll be, I'll err on the side of being slightly conservative, and I'll pick Lazardo. You know, he's already on the 40-man roster. He's already in the big leagues. He's going to be, you know, barring an, an injury or or an absolutely terrible spring training, he's going to be in the A's rotation at the start of the year. Um, it's a team that's pretty good, you know, has a chance to be pretty good, potentially. I, I think that uh, that that's who, if I were, were going to pick one guy from the AL, that would be my pick. Jim, do you agree before we move to the NL? Um, I would I would probably take Luis Robert just coming off the monster year he had and, and how good a park it is to hit at guaranteed rate field. Um, you know, the funny thing is you could also make an argument that Nick Madrigal on that same White Sox team, uh, you know, could win the Rookie of the Year award. But I, I would take Luis Robert. I, I just think he could come up and, you know, have a – you know, 25 homer, 25 steal season as a rookie if they don't let service time considerations play a role. And and I'd also, I mean, another lefty, and we didn't even mention him in the lead up to this. I mean, Brendan McKay, mm-hmm. still rookie eligible. 
Um, you know, he, I think he could, he'd be a prime candidate too. But if I, if I pick one, I would pick Luis Robert. That is fair. I'm, you know, I'm just going to ride it out and, and stick with, stick with Casey Myers. Forrest Whitley's another one. I know he's had a really strange last few seasons as we've talked about. Um, but if he's healthy, he'll probably be in the big leagues a good amount. Davey Garcia, a lot of, a lot of great candidates in the American League. The National League, of course, some big names as well. I would say, and again, call me crazy, I would lean that, say, Gavin Lux would be the, the favorite uh, heading into the season. Um, but am, am I wrong there, Jonathan? Would you would you pick anyone else in terms of just where we stand right now uh, as the favorite for for the National League twenty twenty? I want to pick Mackenzie Gore. Just to don't take we him all away from Jim? Yeah, don't we all want to pick Mackenzie um, Gore? <laughs> I think I think that Lux is a is a is a is a very good bet based on what you know the same sort of things you know in terms of the fact that he made it up to the big leagues. Uh, he should be there from day one. He's got the the kind of dynamic uh, package of tools where he could be, you know, a 2020 guy right right out of the gate. Um, you know, so I think all that's there. Uh, you know, there are a couple other guys who are up. Um, none of the other ones like are slam dunks to me. I mean, I, I like the way Mitch Keller threw at the end of the year here in Pittsburgh and he is certainly going to be given every opportunity to be in that rotation. And he's, he was two innings shy of graduating. So he is still rookie eligible and another guy who will be, uh, you know, on the opening day roster. So assuming he stays healthy and throws the way he did at the end of this year. And I, I think he will, he's another guy that I think is, uh, uh, you know, a good one to, to, to keep an eye. Uh, I will, Jim, sorry, but I just want to do one note on Keller because I agree with you, Jonathan, that he looked really good. He had one of, if you look at, you know, peripherals, you know, sometimes like, oh, he has a really bad ERA. He had like a historically unlucky season, even in a small sample size, um, 713 ERA and a 319 FIP, which is like <laughs> completely unheard of. Like he was striking out a ton of dudes, you know, giving up a ton of hits. It was a, it was a bizarre uh, 11 starts for Mitch Keller. So I like that Keller pick. I'm, I'm pulling for him. Uh, Jim, does anyone stand up to you? How he, you know, I, have a, I have a question. I mean, I know he had a good yeah. strikeout rate. I mean, I guess they're, they're normalizing it to a, to a, a more normal BAPIP, but you give up 72 hits in 48 right. innings. Like I can't imagine that's like, like nobody's defense is that bad that they're, they're um, letting you down that much. It was pretty I, bad. <laughs> Yes, well, but I mean, I'm I'm looking here. I'm gonna do the math here because he struck out 65 guys. So and we'll, we'll subtract the six home runs. So like when they put the ball in, in in play, I believe we're talking. Hold on, doing the math here. They hit like 470. They hit like 470. <laughs> yeah, 475. Is that not? Nobody's all, nobody's defense is that bad. So it's like a very it's very bizarre line right, all the way around. Right. Like I don't that's the thing. I don't know whether to look at that and be like more concerned that it's somehow that terrible, but he was missing a ton of it's bats. Like I have no idea. It's it's truly bizarre. Yeah, it's it's really both. I mean, it's like you can look at it both ways. But anyway, no, I, I think Lux is the obvious choice. Um I, I would take him number one as well. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a guy who I think can get an opportunity on a team, you know, unless they go out and sign a free agent, I could see Alec Baum possibly, uh, making a push for the rookie of the year award. Cause I think he's gonna get the chance to play. And I, I really like his approach and he hit everywhere he went this year. 
And I've always been a big Carter Keyboom fan. You know, got a taste of the big leagues last year. I mean, who knows what that infield is going to look like? What if Rendon goes somewhere? Maybe Carter Keyboom's the third baseman. Um, I, I like Carter Keyboom as a little bit of a sleeper pick. That's too. good. And uh, Baum wasn't even my uh, Phillies guy for rookie of the year. So there. Well, I was going to say, I was going to say, I, like, I, I, I was going to bring up, I was going to bring up Spencer Howard as another possibility. There were some quotes that came out last week that he might get a big opportunity uh, in the big leagues, but I think Baum is. Is a good pick too. I think Baum is a is a little bit of a, a safer bet. I think you know Howard. I think is like it's a bit of the uh, roll of the dice. The stuff is really really good, but the command makes you pause for a second in terms of that immediate in, in terms of that immediate impact. The tough thing with him too. We always talk about this with Forrest Whitley. You know, counting the fall league, Howard pitched ninety two innings this year. So how many innings can you really give him next year? You know, he had some injury issues. So, like, that might be a limiting factor, too. But, like, he looked great in the fall. I mean, as you saw, too. And I don't remember, Jordan, if you got to see him pitch while you were down there. But, like, start in and start out, Spencer Howard had the best consistent stuff in the fall. Yeah, he's uh, he has he has bumped up in a hurry. Uh, he's, he's one of the pitching prospects that has definitely gotten a lot of helium in the last few years. Um, so we'll see how much uh, he impacts the Phillies. But, but there you go, Phillies. Okay. You, you know, you got Joe Girardi now. You got your – Maybe it won't be as much of a disaster as it was uh, in 2019. Uh, but I recommend uh, everyone go check out the article uh, with many other very intriguing names uh, on this list that will surely make us look stupid uh, a year from now. Uh, all right. I, I know we've, we've, we've already talked a lot, but I, I, I still have so many so many more awards to get to here. Um, can we let's have a quick a conversation about manager of the year, Rocco Baldelli. And I do not care what you guys think about Rocco Baldelli as the manager because I want to talk about the wound socket rocket himself. Back when Rocco was a prospect, um, so I guess Jonathan, I'll start with you. What do you remember about Rocco Baldelli, the prospect? He was a first-round pick. He was a, a huge deal coming out of not exactly the the biggest baseball hotbed in Rhode Island. Uh, what do you remember right. about uh, Rocco right. when he was a prospect? Uh, so I have to uh, admit, you know, so I started at MLB.com in 1999. Now we did a draft coverage right out of the gate. Uh, but it wasn't my only focus. Uh, I, I was the only staff writer, really, at the time. Um, so I do remember the 2000 draft thinking, uh, and you know, even doing like stuff running up to it, I'm like, there's a kid from Rhode Island who's going to be like a top of the first round pick. Um, you know, it's not like it, it. It's not like it is now in terms of not only in terms of the amount of information that's out there, but my focus on on it. Uh, at all um you know and he was just this guy who had you know had all the tools um and showed them at times during his big league career even if it didn't last as long as people you know would have anticipated but he he did show that you know the, the power speed combination that made him uh you know that that made him that number six overall pick in the 2000 draft I was going to say, you know, that 2000 draft, at that point, the Red Sox were were, were were hitting New England prospects hard, and there was a lot of talk. The Red Sox really want this kid, and he just kept getting more and more. You know, his rise in the spring kind of reminds me of what Andrew Benintendi's was a couple of years ago, where just the more people saw him, he kept rising up boards and wound up going number six overall in what was one of the worst first rounds I think I've covered. But, you know, I mean, this guy, you know, he was Mr. Everything in Rhode Island. He was a sprint champion. He won state titles in basketball, baseball, 
volleyball. Um, and, and, you know, he had a big league career, you know, he was our baseball, I was a baseball American. He was our minor league player of the year, um, in 2002, if I'm remembering correctly. And the tools translate to pro ball. I mean, this was a, you know, a guy who could hit for power, hit for average, steal bases, play center field. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, he had, uh, you know, mitochondrial disease, which led to muscle fatigue and it just really restricted his career and, and kind of held him back, um, a, as a player. But, uh, you know, until that kind of, you know, waylaid him, he looked like he was going to be a pretty special guy. Like he, he was very good as a rookie and then just never really kind of stayed healthy or approached those numbers again. But a quick detour that the 2000 draft, like I said, was one of the worst first rounds in history and people were not happy with it at the time. It was funny. Adrian Gonzalez went number one overall. And a lot of people thought it was a reach and a signability pick because the Marlins actually announced his signing, like in the middle of the second round and then claimed that they didn't have a pre-draft deal in place. Uh, okay. Marlins, I'll believe that. Um, and he obviously worked out, but even though Rocco Baldelli had an abbreviated career, there were only two first rounders. Well, three counting Adrian Gonzalez there were only three first rounders, who had a better big league career than him that year. Do either of you want to take a guess before I tell you? Oh, well, I already, I already cheated, so I'm not going to. I just pulled it up. So, Jonathan, uh, do you want to? No, I'm not going to guess. Yeah. Nah, just tell me. Okay, we will chase Utley and Adam Wainwright. But, it, I mean, Adrian Gonzalez went one. Adam Johnson went two. Luis Montanez went three. Mike Stadolka went four and Justin Wayne went five. Stadolka didn't play in the big leagues. The other three guys all had negative war. And then the four picks behind Rocco Baldelli never played in the big leagues. Matt Harrington, who's a whole nother story. Matt Wheatland, Mark Phillips, and Joe Torres. I mean, five of the first 10 picks in that draft didn't make the majors, which is got to be close to a record. And only two of them had positive war. And then if you go even further, like Dave Krenzel had 0.2 war. And he's the only guy from 11 to 14 who made the big leagues and had positive yeah. war. I mean, it, it was an I'm insane gonna, uh, first round. It's like the anti-2011 draft is essentially what we're looking at here. Um, but I'm going to stand up for Sean Burnett here, who had a very long career as a, as a, as a left-handed reliever, of 19th overall of the Pirates. I, let's, come on. I, he's your fifth but He's your I know, fifth if best we're not taking rounder, Aaron Heilman, uh, pick number 31. Uh, wow. This Yeah, this is great. Well, Aaron Allen was a supplemental okay. pick, so don't, okay. don't take Aaron All right, Allen. Forgive me. Uh, wow. Well, the that is that is pretty pretty brutal. So if you think so, sure, maybe Rocco was a relative disappointment, not not at all to the to his fault. Uh, of course, a lot of bizarre, unusual health issues there. Um, but there you go. So Rocco Baldelli. Now, Mike Schilt uh, did not play baseball at all. He's the, the first manager of the year to have never played professionally. Um, so we, we don't have much to say about his career, uh, I believe, at UNC Charlotte, UNC Asheville. I, I don't know. Uh, but let's let's move because we're, we're already at 30 minutes. But I mean, we're, we're, we're just getting started here, folks. Uh, I mean, we <laughs> we we're we're hopefully this next draft discussion is going to be a little bit more enlightening as we move to 2004, which produced the two-time Cy Young Award winner, Justin Verlander, who just uh, was announced last night as the American League winner, edging out his teammate, Garrett Cole. Uh, now, last podcast, we talked a lot about the 2005 draft, uh, the infamous draft where Jim correctly mocked the first uh, 19 or the first 26 or the first 27, whatever, uh, with Ryan Zimmerman. 
first <laughs> he was 126 rounds of the draft. I, I believe it. I believe it. Uh, but no, Justin Verlander went number two overall. Uh, and so I wanted to, to go back. Of course, he's you know obvious Hall of Famer now, one of the best pitchers of the generation, and he's still going. Um, so let's talk about that 2004 first round. Uh, Jonathan, I'll start with you. You have a, a good story about seeing Mr. Verlander in college at Old Dominion, not exactly a, a baseball powerhouse. Um, tell yeah. me, sorry, so forgive me, uh, but but tell me about uh, about Justin Verlander in college. Yeah, it was. Uh, I don't remember how it how it came into being. You know, we were you know doing a good amount of draft coverage. I was like, it was probably the second year I was going out to like do features on players. The year before, I went to Eastern Pennsylvania and wrote a big story on Chris Lebansky. Um, yeah, I know, I know. Uh, it's funny because, uh, uh, it's so funny. I look wistfully because he, at one point in time, uh, sent me like a signed baseball card, like that was in plastic, like as a thank you for, uh, for writing about him. And I got to know the family and things like that. And I'm like, and I used to joke that that was going to use that to pay for, for my kid's college, but I don't think that's going to work out. Um, he's got like a master's degree now. So good for him. Um, so Justin Verlander in 2004, you know, you'd heard his name and I was like, you know, I, I want to go and I want to do a story. And he obviously was old dominion's Friday night starter and they were playing Virginia Commonwealth, which was, you know, a somewhat local rival. And their ace was Justin Orenduff, who was a comp round pick, uh, that year. They had both been on Team USA the summer prior and they'd become good friends. So I was like, this is like a cool idea. They're like good friends. They're both named Justin and uh, they're pitching against each other. So I did a whole thing. I sat down both of them together the day after they pitched. Now, I don't have the box score in front of me, but uh, Justin Orend have struck out 12 in a complete game and lost. Um, it was like a two to nothing game. Verlander struck out 16 or 17. It was the first time I had been like when I went to see Lebanski play, there were, there were a good amount of pros, uh, scouts there, but it was, you know, like a random middle of the week. Uh, it was like a doubleheader high school in Eastern Pennsylvania. This was a Friday night where you had a chance to see a guy who was, you know, slated to go at the top of the first round and another guy who was second round at the, at the very latest. And both were as advertised. And I think the thing I remember most outside of, you know, how much I enjoyed the conversation with, with the both of them is Verlander just absolutely cruising. Uh, and it's just, all, it's all it was, was fastball, breaking ball, fastball, breaking ball. And, and uh, Jim, I don't know if you remember this, but he was one of those guys. I remember like people were like, you start to nitpick guys at the top of the draft and like, well, he doesn't really have a change up. Well, he did. He just didn't need it back, you know, especially in, in that conference, but he is, he was completely locked in. And then like the sixth or seventh inning, the guy hitting, um, uh, like seventh in the Virginia Commonwealth lineup, steps out to try to disrupt Verlander's timing. Verlander proceeds to throw the next ball 96 behind his head, at which point every scout behind home plate got on their phones. And I'm like, that just made him some money because that was. There's a Josh Beckett story, the same thing, yeah. where. Some little kid tried to time up his fastball and, and like, kind of, I don't know if he homered off him, but, like, maybe doubled and pimped it a little bit. And then the next time up, Beckett smoked him in the back, and everybody's like, yeah, got to have that. So. Yeah. Yeah, no. It, it was, was like, 
<laughs> this was this this was. I remember. I remember. It was the Virginia Commonwealth catcher. He was this little stocky guy who couldn't hit. Um, and uh, this is amazing because while we're doing this, Jim found. Uh, I can't believe he found the story. It was three to nothing. He did. He struck out sixteen. I got that right. That's crazy. Very nice. <laughs> That's crazy that I remember that. But it just remember- he was only four and three. Yeah, that, that, that he was three and three going into that game and wound up four and three. Yeah, well, old, old Dominion was t- yeah. not good. They were not good. And, uh, and, but I just remember that was the first time I saw like a, a, a draft pitching prospect of that caliber in person. Um, and it was just like he did not belong in that conference. And it was clear that he was going to go, you know, at or near the top of the draft. And, you know, I guess if Kevin Towers has had his way, he would have gone to the Padres. No, no, no. Overall. No, 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 no. That's not it. No. No, the Padres screwed that up about six different ways, which we can get into if we want. But Jim, Uncle Jim, tell us a story. Well, I was just going to say, and like, I I will couch it by saying, well, I'll go ahead and give my own mea culpa at the end of this. The the, the Padres, their scounder to that year was Chief Gaten. And Chief did not speak to me for a year because I had the gall to suggest that they might take Justin Verlander number one. I mean, Chief was furious with me, and I had an, I had an expletive-laced uh, voicemail where he couldn't believe that I would even insinuate that they would That's take Verlander That's classic one. Chief. That is so classic they were never, Chief. I mean, from my dealings with him, yeah, I mean, they, they, yeah, you absolutely. Know, <laughs> yeah, and, and so anyway, we, you know, it, but, in, so anyway, there was it was a weird year. What happened was they they were set on Stephen Drew. They they narrowed it down to three guys. It was Stephen Drew, it was Jared Weaver, and it was Jeff Neiman. And I think Chief liked Neiman the most. Neiman was coming off a great sophomore year at Rice where they won the championship, and Neiman was just hurt, like some minor injuries. He was never really one hundred percent during the year, so they didn't. They did like he was out. They settled on Drew. So here's the crazy thing. So they, everybody knows they're picking Drew like a week in advance. And uh, so they know they're picking Drew. And the story goes that, that, that John Morris, who's the owner, asked Kevin Towers, who's the GM, like three days before the draft, who are we taking 1-1? One, one? We're taking Stephen Drew. How much is it going to cost? Probably 5 or $6 million. Is he worth it? No. And like when I heard this story first time, I was like, like, well, like the, and the owner asked, well, my question would have been, if he's not worth it, why would we pay him 5 or $6 million? So – the, 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 the Padres come up with the idea like, okay, we're not going to overpay for Stephen Drew and give him a major league contract, which he eventually got, I think, from the Diamondbacks, right? Um, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go in a different direction, um, and we'll, we'll put some money into our new academy down the Dominican. Well, here's the problem. This is three days before the draft, and the Padres did not have a second-round pick that year, so they're picking number one, and they're not picking until the third round, like pick 90 or something. And so the Padres, to save some money, had decided not to really scout heavily a bunch of guys they thought they'd have no shot at. So they now are three days before the draft. They're not taking Stephen Drew. Jared Weaver's going to cost a similar amount of money. Jeff Neiman's going to cost a similar amount of money. They haven't scouted anybody else. Like, like seriously, to where you could take the guy 1-1 overall. And instead of, of, of trying to, you know, like, let's, hey, let's take six or eight of our best scouts and we'll send them to the NCAA regionals and, and see as many guys as we can. They take the whole contingent over down the road to, to Mission Bay High School to watch Matt Bush play. Um, and 
did not do a lot of homework on Matt Bush's makeup, which I th- we found out later that people, had they done that homework, would have maybe told them that there are some issues with Matt Bush that would crop up when they signed him. But they wound up taking Matt Bush and had absolutely no interest in, in, in signing Verlander or taking Verlander. And, um, the, and, and, and then to, to now make it not look like I'm being mean to Chief, I, and I cannot answer why this happened. We did not rank Justin Verlander, even though he's the number two pick, on our top 100 prospects list after the 2004 season. And I have no idea. I have no recollection as to why that would be. Why would we do that? I mean, if it was an oversight, it was an incredible oversight. But the the other aspect of Verlander with the Tigers that I don't think many people realize is back then you could sign players to major league contracts, which you can no longer do in the draft. And the going rate for the top you know, one, two, three college pitchers every year was you'd get a major league deal, bonus would be over three million, and the major league deal would guarantee you about five and a half million dollars. And I don't know what exactly Verlander and his agents were 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 angling for, but it got so bad to the point where where Greg Smith, who was the scouting director of the Tigers, they had a press conference and announced publicly we're done negotiating with Justin Verlander. I guess it's not going to happen. There was no signing deadline back then. This was probably September, October, and just said, you know, we're at an impasse. This isn't going to get done. Um, and obviously, there's some grandstanding to make a point to the player there. But Verlander's dad was, a, I think, a, a negotiator or a mediator. That was his profession. And Verlander's dad actually called the Tigers and got the talks rekindled. And then they did sign him to a big league contract. Um, and he was in the big leagues and made a cameo in the middle of that year. Um, you know, had a great minor league season was in the big leagues to stay in, in 2006. I, I, I mean, you never know all the different roads that you're going to take us down there, but that that's crazy. That is that. But, but here's, yeah. here's one more thing for you. Johnson Mayo. I, I don't think you'll get <laughs> okay. this, this Jordan. If the Padres had taken Justin Verlander at 1-1, who would the area scout have who been? Who would the area scout have been for, for the Padres, for the Padres. Who, was in, who was scouting like in Virginia, basically? It, does he still work for yes. the Padres? Does he... Do you know, Jonathan? I don't know the answer to the question. I'm trying to think. It's, it's someone who works in a front office now. Uh, right? I'm you guessing in a, scouting, in a scouting department somewhere. Are you ready? Go ahead. You ready? Just tell me. Rookie scout, first year as a scout, Josh Boyd. Do you know the? Do you know that I almost, I almost was going to guess that, but uh, because I knew he scouted somewhere in like the car, I thought he went right from Baseball America. He scouted it for one year and then he did the Pacific Northwest. But yes, Josh had left Baseball America, where he was on the 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 all time All Star team of Baseball America, and that was his rookie scouting assignment was in Mid Atlantic and. If it had worked out a little bit differently, he could have had the number one overall pick yep. in, his in his first, first year of scouting. Scout. I wonder how many times that's happened. You know, I didn't guess him because I, in my head, he started scouting like a little bit later than that. Uh, well, clearly. Jim, and for for our our listeners who are not as as uh, as clued in to 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 the current props, would you like to tell everyone what Josh Boyd is doing now? Yeah, he, Josh is an assistant GM. He has been for a few years with the Rangers. He's been with them for a while. Went from amateur scouting with the Padres for a few years and then into pro scouting with the, with the Rangers and now an assistant GM. And uh, But, yeah, it's like I remember rooting for him and then realized 
after my my voicemail from Chief, and, and Chief and I get along fine now. But after my voicemail from Chief, that Josh was not going to get Justin Verlander uh, in um, his first year. I I mean that that is an incredible story. Many many connections there. I guess I just want to throw out a few other names from this first round. Uh, Billy Butler. The third baseman was a first-round selection by the Royals. You mentioned Stephen Drew earlier. Jared Weaver uh, to the Angels, 12th overall. Trevor Plouffe, longtime big leaguer. Phil Hughes um, was was in this uh, draft. Houston Street and Gio Gonzalez uh, in the comp round as well. And I think some of those names should also uh, serve to to underline the absurdity that is Justin Verlander's career, uh, as guys like Jared Weaver just had full successful big league careers and have now been gone for multiple years, and Justin Verlander just won another scion. Um, that wow, I, the, I've learned so much as always, as always, uh, as has Jonathan's dog. Uh, so, <laughs> um, uh, all right, guys. Well, this is. I mean, we've we've gone pretty long here. Uh, I and and I've I've learned so much as always. Uh, we will get our MVP picks tonight. Um, and, and I'm sorry we did not get to, uh, unless, I mean, again, I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you guys. Do you, do you guys want to, if you have a good Jacob deGrom shortstop story, I, I, I will let you, I will let you do that now. Otherwise, uh, we can wrap up here. So I'll, I'll send to you. Do you guys want to, you guys want to do a little deGrom shortstop chat? Okay. Right. The story that everybody knows that he was a, a two-way guy who, you know, was right. a, a shortstop first and obviously has multi- emerged as a multiple, you know, two-time Cy Young Award winner. Uh, you know, hats off to uh, hats off Stetson. Stetson. I mean, not just Jacob DeGrom. And but uh, Logan Gilbert well. next. Uh, Logan Gilbert next, folks. It's going to happening. It's happening. I mean, that's already – he's got to win two. Do you think Corey and, and, and yes. Jacob talk 100%. to – Talk to Logan if he wins one Cy Young, or they're like, dude, you got to win two Look, Cy Youngs. He, uh, Logan uh, took all the right steps uh, this year for the Mariners. Uh, I see no reason why he should not win it this year, uh, and then maybe he can take a few years off and then uh, win it a few years down the road when the Mariners are in the World Series. But until then, see, I, I could only go so long. Uh, oh, that. man, such a hard <laughs> um, Hey, you picked Mitch Keller, and he had a 7 yeah. ERA, Johnson, so I'm the <laughs> – that was nothing to do with I know, I know, friend. I know. I just wanted to, I just, all about I just wanted to, I so just wanted to throw it back at you. Uh, all right, gentlemen, this has been a pleasure as always. Thank you so much for taking down, taking us down uh, 2004 memory lane, 2000 memory lane. I mean, wow, we, we've really, really gone a, a long way back. You're just making me feel old. So although you, you will never make me feel older than we were, when we were at the fall league. And I realized you were too much. Well, there you older go. It's fine. My, my I, that's son. the whole point of this podcast uh, is me to make you guys feel old. So thank you guys for indulging me. Uh, and thank you uh, to those uh, who listened. Uh, good luck to uh, maybe we'll talk MVP next week. We'll talk some rule five for sure. Uh, but until then, for Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis, I am your host, Jordan Schusterman. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the OMB Pipeline podcast. And we will be back with some rule five fever next week.